Welcome to the Rewire Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Does anybody know what's going on here? We got a bunch of fucking vampires out there trying to get in here and suck our fucking blood. And that's it, plain and simple. And I don't want to hear anything about I don't believe in vampires. Because I don't fucking believe in vampires. What I believe in my own two eyes and what I saw is fucking vampires. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampire? Yes. Today, as part of our Hallow Rewind series, we'll be discussing From Dust Till Dawn. Starring George Clooney. Okay, Ramblers, let's get Ramblers. Quentin Tarantino. You said... As long as I don't act like a fucking nut, implying that I've been acting like a fucking Hell, nut. All right, I just made you cool. Juliette Lewis. Watch your stuff. What's your name, Billy? Hey, what's yours? Sex machine. Nice to meet you. Kate. And Harvey Keitel. Fight with you to the bitter end, but when I turn into one of them, I won't be Jacob anymore. I'll be a lap dog of Satan. Directed by Robert Rodriguez. Welcome to sleep. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Lowly dogs, get on your knees, bow your heads and worship at the feet of Santanica. Pandemonium! <laughs> it's Gally in Glasgow. Sex Machine, pleased to meet you Kate. It's Devlin in London. Hey, what do we have approaching here? No flavour, apple pie pussy. <laughs> <laughs> it's Patrick in London. I think I'm going to get tanked tonight. It's Matt in South Korea. Welcome back, listeners, and welcome to our first episode of a unique bespoke series for this time of year. <laughs> it's our Hallow Rewind series, where we we go back and look at some of the most formative Halloween films of our youth. Our first choice is from our South Korean correspondent on the ground, Matt. You have chosen From Dust Till Dawn, a 1996 film. It's kind of, uh, it, it's all hooked into the Tarantino connection, really. I, I wanted to choose this film because it's, it features two of my filmmaking heroes, Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, as we've never really featured them on the podcast before. Uh, I have quite a long running relationship with the film. Uh, my sister Anna and, and, and I each bought it for each other one year at Christmas. That's how much we like it. And there's a picture of us under the tree with our big limited edition uh, Blu-ray box sets with the titty twister shot glasses and the posters and all that stuff. And uh, it's it's a film, me and one of my oldest friends who um, uh, Devlin's also quite close with, Sam Hollis, we, we referenced it as 17-year-olds when we made our first ever short film, Night Class, which is dreadful. And I'll put it in the show link if you fancy watching it. Um uh, I watched From Dust Till Dawn with the commentary um, just as much as without these days. I'm really into the uh, the, the Rodriguez-Tarantino commentary. Without treading on any conclusions or anything, I think it's a film that celebrates both the act of filmmaking and the joy of watching a really fun movie. Uh, it, it's kind of a 50% slice of my favourite double bill ever. I usually watch it with Evil Dead 2. Uh, they're kind of connected in a lot of ways through a lot of the uh, the crew. And also just the, the, the overall tone and, and fun aspect of the film. Um, today, yeah, it's sort of brought to you uh, with full tilt boogie rather than anything else. But, uh, 
yeah, as I said, it's not essential, but we'll just uh, we'll just plow ahead with from dusk till dawn. Uh, my first experience was at Richmond School in 1996, 1997. I was about 14 or 15. It's a really cool time for music and film and football. And uh, it was the first time I discovered Quentin Tarantino. There was uh, uh, I, I saw Pulp Fiction first, then I saw Reservoir Dogs, and then there was this kind of explosion that happened with all of his other films that were circulating the school on VHS tapes. Um, there was Natural Born Killers and True Romance and... Uh, all of these films. So it felt like I was getting five films at once that were all, uh, all connected to Tarantino. And, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of my, my in. So, uh, how did you first experience it, uh, Devlin? Uh, I would have seen this, uh, in school, probably around the same sort of age. It was a, a film that everyone talked about. It's which a lot of the films that, that we discuss, um, from around the mid to late nineties were the same sort of thing, right? Where, somebody has seen this film and it's absolutely mental. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that, you know, the, and it does basically have all the ingredients that would be, uh, considered the sort of illicit thrills that, that a teenage boy would, would want, which is there's guns and there's swearing and then there's boobs and then there's vampires and then there's a lot mm. of blood. Um, I remember really, uh, uh, I remember liking it, but, um, probably didn't watch it a, a, a whole bunch. Um, and I've sort of seen it off and on in the, in the years since, but, um, uh, I guess I just, it's, it's a film that I'd never given a, a great deal of like thought to, which is odd because, um, again, not to give too much away, but, um, watching it last week, I just, uh, uh, had, an extraordinarily entertaining evening watching it. Like it's, um, uh, yeah. So it's going to be interesting to be able to actually talk about it properly. Cause it's always, I don't know. Um, I never really delved, uh, as far into Tarantino when I was younger either. Uh, I've, I've seen and liked plenty of his stuff and I watched Pulp Fiction as did most people, although it took me a while to see Reservoir Dogs. Mm. I think because of that, I maybe um, uh, by the time I get to film Scott, I probably had a little bit of like a irritating chip on my shoulder about him in that because he was so many people's kind of inroad mm-hmm. and because it didn't grab me in the same way. Um, I think by the time I sort of got there and, and you saw how kind of pervasive his influence was, and certainly by the time we got to film school, his, uh, his personal brand and ego had inflated to, to such a remarkable degree that we were just about into the era of kill bill then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure we'll discuss uh, uh, the many tentacled uh, arms of, of Quentin Tarantino's influence into the film business in, in such an enormous way since the 90s. But um, I did have a lot more time for Robert Rodriguez, though. Um, I remember really enjoying Desperado uh, a lot and going back and watching El Mariachi. I think with El Mariachi, I, I preferred the story of its creation maybe more so than I do watching the film. Uh, yeah, me too. The casual, but very dedicated sort of, you know, the, the, the brilliance for like chop. What, what do you say that was shot, chopped and scored. It's like, right. Yeah. Shit. The most violent um, credit ever. Yeah. So that, that mm. sort of stuff was, uh, was, was really appealing. The idea of the, the outside is breaking in and these, you know, if you've got a, an idea, a camera and, mm-hmm. and a vision, you can, you can make something happen. And, um, mm-hmm. I think that, for, for a lot of us in, in, 
getting into wanting to work in film that was probably quite an inspiring thing how about you patrick i i think i've seen it once before um and like most things of this time this is some film i definitely attribute to and thank my father for introducing me to <laughs> <laughs> um it, i don't know whether it, here's the thing I, I was trying to think about when we watched it and i, I remember watching it with mum and dad i remember watching it in leicester I can't remember if it was something we rented from the video box or if it was something we recorded on TV, but I seem to recall my dad being a bit excited about it. And I'm, I'm, it's a really interesting thing you guys are saying about, uh, your history and your knowledge of Tarantino and Rodriguez. I'm trying to, I, I should have had a conversation with him before this. I'm trying to remember if dad was acutely aware that it was Tarantino and Rodriguez or Tarantino or Rodriguez, one or the other, because I don't, I only seem to remember our reactions at the time being of the film and talking about what happened in the film and the actors and the characters within the film rather than who wrote or directed it. I just, that's my conversation that I remember after it because uh, we've given the spoiler warning, but the twist in it really kind of wowed us when we first watched it when I was younger I don't remember how old I was but it would have been mid to teens um, to late teens and to go in the Tarantino conversation I do recall wanting to see his back catalogue and getting really quite excited by Pulp Fiction because that was the conversation you had around your your, uh, mid to late teens I think for anyone nowadays Mm. really but I don't remember making the comparison to From Dust Till Dawn. So it's like I see it as a separate entity, which is really was really interesting for me to think back on that. Um because I just remember watching it at home and kind of being quite gleeful that I'm watching an adult film with my parents that I'm allowed to watch that was full of language and kind of not embarrassed. I never really got embarrassed with mum and dad watching films, but um even to this day, bringing him up again, but my dad loves to just quote randomly out of nowhere, snapping pussy! <laughs> and he'll just say it to me when he, he wants to uh, elicit a response or just make me laugh or it's something he's very fond of and remembers well because this dialogue in here, I think he, he really enjoyed. And because of that, I really enjoyed and found it quite funny. I can't remember being aware that it was Tarantino at all. Um I think Desperado and Alma actually came more when I was at university that I watched. So maybe this was my first taste of um, Rodriguez uh without really being aware of it at the time. Gally, what, what about you? Unfairly, I think I'd always put Tarantino above Rodriguez, but I think that comes down to exposure and reach as well you know Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs really did just completely change the landscape and and actually Rodriguez had I got if I could turn back time like Cher then I would probably um, <laughs> you straddling a cannon yeah <laughs> in my fishnets um yeah if I if I could go back I would probably have said you know what you, you should probably as an aspiring filmmaker pay more attention to mm. this guy over here because actually what Rodriguez represented was exactly, it was, you said it, Devlin, a gateway, a kind of a way in to infiltrate a system that some lad from Stoke-on-Trent is watching films in his, in his cubbyhole room thinking, 
well, I could actually do that. And we talked about it a little bit when we discussed Boogie Nights and Paul uh, Thomas Anderson. They were all inspirations to me, and Tarantino in particular. And I was sold hook, line, and sinker soundtracks. And and you said before about El Mariachi, actually the making of the film being more interesting. I had that with all the films. You know, not to say that Pulp Fiction's um, not a great film, but I wanted to know everything about these individuals, how they made the films. And to be fair, the marketing of those films had that narrative woven through, didn't they? Because it was a bit like, you know, it was the era of the VH1 behind the scenes, which I used to always watch as well, behind the music and behind the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And you would uh, you would really be sold on this kind of rags to riches tales. And, and I really did fall for it. Not to say that it's not true, but it's obviously a lot harder than just, uh, I penned this script and someone will give me money and I will make it. It's not quite as simple as that. But at the time it was for me because I would watch from Dust to Dawn and think, well, that's the kind of film I'd like to make. <laughs> you know, just something that is like, you can do whatever you want and it feels wild. It feels energetic and, um, and it feels completely unfiltered. Uh, and, and they felt that way, didn't they? You know, the book that he penned was Rebel Without a Crew, um, Rodriguez book, mm. which Matt, I know you're a massive fan of. Um, yeah. And, and it really does kind of give you this insight as to how you may potentially um, get into this world because, you know, you may as well just do it yourself, aren't you? There's no, no one's going to give you the break. You may as well create it. So, yeah, yeah, that was my history with the film. I saw it young and it, like you said, Matt, it was I watched them all. And the one that no one ever talks about and maybe we will talk about it is uh, no one ever mentions four rooms. Four rooms, <laughs> yeah. is, dre- four rooms is dreadful. And yeah. I even watched that. I bought that on VHS. I just, I subsumed everything because I was like, this appears to be the path. Mm. Obviously, I was sold a lie. But, um, you know, at the time, it felt like a, a viable option. Yeah, well, there's an interesting through line there with uh, things that Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino do together. They have these big concepts that never quite work out for a lot of people. Mm. If, if you think about Four Rooms, it was an anthology film uh, with four stories. Uh, Tarantino directed a room and uh, Rodriguez directed a room. Who else was it? It was Alison Anders and and there was another chap. Uh, yeah, the can't name escapes me, but it was kind yeah. of a a lot of these anthology films are kind of doomed anyway because they rarely work. But um, mm. they they did it again with From Dust Till Dawn with this huge flip halfway through that that not only kind of divides the film but also divides audiences like all over. You, you'll have half people in the camp that wanted it to continue to be a a crime road movie and the other half of the Fangoria crowd that just mm. think it's fantastic that, that all hell breaks loose in the bar. And then they also did it again with the uh, uh, grindhouse in 2010, which was another grandiose idea um, that didn't quite pan out commercially. Uh, although mm. if, you, if you separate the films, the uh, planet terror is kind of fun. And uh, I do prefer death proof to, to planet terror and it works better on its own. I think, Rather than being as part of this, this, uh, kind of fictional double bill. But yeah, that they have big ideas, but they, they don't always, always pan out, but they kind of commit to them. Did any of you guys well, read, um, the Peter Biskind book, um, Down and Dirty Pictures? You know, we didn't, don't we? No. Oh, no. okay. <laughs> well, this yeah. was, uh, because a, a lot of people around, around that era, this was his second industry book. The first one was, uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls. Right. Yeah. Which, which, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I've read that one. See, yeah, so this was the follow-up. So Easy Riders Raging Bulls was, you know, the kind of very gossipy, um, 
account of the rise of the the new Hollywood generation in the 60s and 70s, you know, how Coppola and Spielberg and, and uh, De Palma and Scorsese and everyone broke through and, um, and uh, you know, it played up the, the kind of, again, the insurrectionist rebellious nature of this new, this new guard who were coming in and they were going to sweep away the old and the stuffy and it was going to be cool from here on out. And then um, it kind of tracks it up until the eighties where some of them become big blockbuster filmmakers and the, the kind of the grounds, the market for these sort of small to mid budget pictures dried up and, um, down and dirty pictures was, was kind of the sequel to that spiritually, which mm. is that in the very late eighties with the rise of Sundance, you get this new generation of, uh, of, of even more insurrectionist kids with even lower budgets and, um, I remember reading that I'd say that was probably my kind of big inspiring thing was, was reading again, they put so much emphasis on the characters of the filmmakers that the filmmakers became the stars. They were the, they were the names that you went to see. I mean, uh, George Clooney will talk about it throughout this film is, uh, you know, he's a, a, a famous ish man mm-hmm. at the point. Like he wasn't particularly like a, you know, he's, he's not a top yeah, star. Big show. Yeah. He was a, he yeah, was a huge show. breakout star on a, on a, on a huge breakout successful TV show, but still, um, whether or not he was, you know, a guy who I'm going to go see the new George Clooney mm-hmm. film, which people would now, but back then I don't think that would be the case. So no. the films get sold on, uh, on the names and, and even more so than Rodriguez, this film was sold on Tarantino's name. And as we've yeah. all said, he was, for better or worse, and whether you liked him or not, he was the big star. Uh, and for that, I, I remember kind of, you know, that it was a real cult of personality and, uh, and reading about like the, the story of how Kevin Smith made clerks, maxed out, maxed out some credit cards and shot it in the, in the convenience store where he worked after hours. Like right. that to me was, was the huge inspiration thing. Like, you know, I, I, you literally need nothing to make a film. I always remember, Gally, our discussions on filmmaking at uni as well. Like Sam Raimi being a big influence for you with. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah, he's the Remember one. the tracking shots and the POV shots <laughs> and Needle Dead? Yeah. Then he just balanced it on a board between his hands. And... <laughs> yeah, yeah. They just came up with a, an innovative way of, uh, of coming up with that. And now that has become its own, you know, it's become its own shot. It's like everyone knows it now. It's the Evil Dead shot. You've got the yeah. floaty cam. Um, POV shot, and that's what it, that's where it's come from. But yeah, it's all of those kind of stories that they, yeah, they really can be inspiring. And for our generation, as you said, Devlin, sort of Scorsese, De Palma, Spielberg, they by the time we got to know them, they were already part of the establishment. Whereas these yeah. guys were, they felt like they were us. You know, we said it, didn't we? They were, they they looked like us, they dressed like us, they sounded like us. They were anoraks as well. They were nerds. You know, they could. And we were nerds, not to say we aren't nerds now, but you know what I mean? We, they'd be able to just talk about some obscure 70s, 60s film that no one's ever heard of because at that age, that's what you're after, isn't it? Like no one wants to buy the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers album that everyone's heard of. You're like, I want to find the band yeah, you that go... no one's ever heard of. Just like the same with the film. Like, you're going to be voracious seen... underground yeah. crate digging. Well, I mean, exactly. th- th- that, you know, not to, not to spoil too much of my, uh, my overall opinion of this, but I think that, that is a, uh, a really infectious and kind of joyful thing that they did bring, which is, it's like a rediscovery. I don't know. I was compared it to like, um, like hip hop in a way, you know, like people finding samples. And then when you sample something, 
suddenly it gets like a second life. Like, I don't know if you remember, this is not particularly underground or cool, but back in the day when you would have like fat boy slim being a big, a big star, if he dropped a few bars of an old funk track from some obscure, completely forgotten seventies act. Uh, I remember when I was working in a record shop, um, suddenly you would get like a greatest hits like a, uh, an act could get an entire second career just out of being sampled. And I feel like some of the mm-hmm. stuff that Tarantino and, and Rodriguez did and some of their contemporaries would, would be considered like sampling. Yeah, it's you know, like yes, remixing absolutely. and Tarantino now, that's what he's criticized for. He's a remixer. He's, yeah. some people say he's a collage artist. You know, that's one of the criticisms mm. they make of him. But yeah, maybe we can, if, if we do a, a later career Tarantino, maybe we can get into more of, more of that stuff. Matt. Will you give us a plot summary for From Dust Till Dawn? Sure. When crazy, sick, fucking bastard bank robbers and real mean motor scooters, the Gecko Brothers, the cool, tattooed, hard-drinking, rough pecker, Seth, played by George Clooney, and tetchy rapist, murderer, and fucking nut, Richie, played by Quentin Tarantino, flee, taking their loot and a lady bank teller hostage. They set their sights on kicking back in the lawless Mexican criminal haven of El Rey where it'll be sweet rosemary, a hundred proof liquor, rice and beans, and none of the old shit will matter. The dastardly duo cunningly hijacked the Fuller family's road trip vacation. Father Jacob, played by Harvey Keitel, is a faithless preacher. Kate, played by Juliette Lewis, his teenage daughter, and adoptive Chinese son, Scott, are held hostage, allowing the geckos to safely cross the border by stowing away in their Winnebago. Plans are drawn to rendezvous with Fixer Carlos at a middle-of-nowhere strip joint dive bar for bikers and truckers only, with no cops, imaginatively named the Titty Twister. Bound together for the night, the geckos and fullers hang out, pound booze, and wait for daylight. But when a seductive, toe-sucking snake dance by the sultry Santanico Pandemonium, played by Salma Hayek, twists into a vicious, out-of-the-blue reptilian vampire attack, all hell breaks loose. A colourful host of characters including Nam Vet Frost, played by Fred Williamson, and leather-clad bullwhip expert Sex Machine, Tom Savini, aid the gang in battling the satanic cocksuckers with six shooters, holy water balloons, makeshift crosses, chair leg stakes, baseball bats and exploding crossbow bolts. Each of our fearless vampire killers is dispatched, except Seth and Kate, who barely escape at sunrise with their souls intact. The pair part ways as it is revealed the site upon which the bar was built was an ancient pyramid of vampiric evil all along. Can we just talk straight away about the opening of this film? <laughs> because I, you know how um, I love the start of Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. D- Desperado's got a great mm. one as well with Buscemi kind of talking up um, Banderas' uh, mariachi killer. But I really love the opening to this film. I just think yeah. it's so cool. Um, Michael Parks, who I guarantee I would never have known who he was if if uh, Quentin Tarantino putting him in like these films. He's so strong. And I just wanted to shout out, and I talked about this offline with Matt, because it's in case I forgot. But John Hawkes, who is just mm. the the most character actor, no one really knows who he is, but he's in all the films you love kind of guy. Oh, it's so good. Their, mm. their conversation uh, is wicked. I, mean, mm. I love this opening. Yeah. I love how it, it feels completely separate and devoid. You're essentially peering into these characters' lives who uh, this is to me what I still think Texas is like, even though I've been there and it wasn't quite, it didn't quite live up to the, the expectation. Yeah. But yeah. It's so long as it. well. It's like 10 minutes before you yeah. get uh, 
Is it after the credits? It's about ten minutes before we really get into the film. Did you break for lunch or nothing? I'm by myself today. Ate my lunch out of the microwave. Jesus H. Christ, Pete. When you gonna learn that microwave food to kill you faster than a bullet? Some of them damn burritos ain't good for nothing but a hippie. But he's high on weed. Pull me down a bottle of that Jack, will you? Yeah. I think I'm going to get tanked tonight. It's, yeah, yeah, pretty much. The, um, it is great though, isn't it? Like as a, uh, oftentimes the, uh, unfortunately a lot of, um, uh, films tended to be influenced by this, right? And they would do the same sort of thing. And, and people would kind of become convinced that if they just put a slightly irrelevant and very, um, self-indulgent dialogue scene in, that suddenly they would be seen as being like, you know, crazy risk takers who are messing with the formula. Whereas, uh, the reason why something like this works is that it's, it's ratcheting up the tension by kind of pulling you in. It's giving you, uh, a whole bunch of exposition, uh, and doing so in a way that's kind of, you know, it's also character based. You know, you've got like this yeah. skeevy sheriff who you immediately dislike and you know the type as well. You're kind of small town, you know, you can just tell that he's kind of a prick. But do, do we not also think that he could be the star of the movie at this point? Well, yeah, exactly. Well, we, we know, uh, we probably know yeah. too much, but somebody watching this on TV at 10 o'clock at night in mm-hmm. Korea, for example, might think he's the star of this movie. He's the sheriff. You know? And John Hawks as well. You yeah. think it'd be a yeah. buddy maybe between those two? Yeah, the way Rodriguez shoots Parks, yeah, because he's he punches. Well, or, the, or that he, or that he's potentially the antagonist. You know? Yeah, yeah, more likely, uh, yeah, because you know you don't you don't especially like him. I mean, um, the mm. language used uh, uh, is um, controversial. I'm sure it was at the time, right? Yeah, exactly. You, you, I think you, you're supposed to see them as like these kind of small town hicks, which probably makes up for the fact that you're not especially uh you're not kind of horrified on their behalf that they eventually get you know mercilessly slaughtered but the language is also fun though right Devlin? Mm, like yeah, the, the exactly. rhythm when he's talking about um very colorful when he says like yeah when he says about the bottle of whiskey and he's like oh you save it up for a day you know it's, it's all <laughs> kind of good good stuff where in a in another film like like patrick said this would be a sort of buddy buddy cop duo weird southern film about these colorful characters but um i i love how it kind of transpires that we just move away from them and even when when the reveal of um clooney and uh tarantino or seth and richie just the way he's like who who you let him use your your commode no he even calls it a commode (laughs) which again just makes me laugh very tarantino it is very tarantino you mentioned before the the operating that the way he shoots michael parks and he's robert rodriguez says he loves to operate camera because he he likes to zoom when he feels Mm. like he wants to and there's this one shot where he's talking about the shit up in abilene about the you know the other rangers getting killed and the bank robbery and all that stuff. And it's a very almost imperceptible slow mm. zoom that goes in. And before you mm. know it, you're drawn right into Earl McGraw's face. And he said he likes to operate camera because when he feels like doing that, he can just do it. He doesn't have to communicate it to someone. And also the sweeping move over to, to Seth is a, he's actually the steady cam operator too, Robert Rodriguez. He, he talked about it when he went from El Mariachi right. to Desperado and he had to develop all these new muscles in the gym so that he could hold the steady cam properly. Uh, we had one on the wilds yeah. where our operator had a glide cam and he made me try it on for 
five minutes and I almost collapsed. So, and then he was like, I want you to know how heavy this thing is because if you tell me to go up that hill 12 times, which I still told him to do, uh, <laughs> you know, then I'd have some kind of empathy for him, but uh, I knew exactly how he felt and I made sure that he had plenty of, plenty of breaks and stuff after that. But yeah. And, and what do we, what do we think then about, I know we'll get into it because their relationship kind of develops, but you see the, you see the sodes of conflict between the two brothers pretty much immediately, don't you? <laughs> George Clooney throughout the film, the Seth character is all about control. And Richie is clearly the maverick, the wild card, the person that is out of control. I said, Matt, that I'll get you to, to slag off your, yeah. your QT, but he's, um, there's a couple of lines in this opening, uh, action sequence that just kind of jarred with me, mainly because when he's up against George Clooney, who I'm afraid is cool personified mm. in this film, and he really has got that charisma and that star power of just emanating cool. Quentin Tarantino is anything but cool. And there's a line when he's like, Oh yeah. And I just thought, Oh God, that's how I would deliver. It. That's how I would deliver it when he's like so, so, talking about shoot the glass behind, yeah. behind uh, Pete's head. Mm-hmm. He's like, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, you are not cool. <laughs> You're cringing at that one. Are you? <laughs> I was cringing. Well, one thing that helps him, Rod- Rodriguez put some um, low rumbles on the soundtrack through almost mm. the entire movie. Uh, just really helping <laughs> just help Quentin's <laughs> <out. laughs> menacing. <laughs> thing and it kind of it kind of works but yeah we we had this talk off off uh, air about um why quentin sometimes comes off as a bit of a dick and i i would like to stick up for him i think it's a case of him being very emotional in like a childlike way um i like that he dares to be emotional uh he sometimes strikes me as someone that that's trying to to impress you know perhaps he didn't get a lot of attention uh, in in his early life perhaps he hasn't been very successful with girls things like that he's, he's very happy to have friends i think he's very happy to to be around people and be impressive to people and whenever he's on tv he tries extremely hard with his stories and i always get frustrated with talk show hosts or some critics who kind of almost ridicule him at times for his quote unquote oddness and you know and they they forget that he is one of the key artists of our time you know uh, like Letterman, Leno, Jonathan Ross, they're all guilty of it. Well, Mark, uh, Mark Commode is, is... Yes. He, he loves Jackie Brown, hates, um, hates death. Hates group. everything else. Really. <laughs> yeah, pretty much hates everything else, doesn't he? Yeah. And he, he, he constantly does the impressions where yeah. it's like, well, you know, you, twitchy, you get it. Twitchy That's how stuff. he talks. Yeah. yeah he's, a, he's a fast talker. But all right. I he guess, says all I right guess, about a hundred yeah, times every yeah. Yeah, minute. <laughs> I guess, I guess my issue is that, uh, no, listen, the film itself in 96 might not have been on my radar had he not been in the film. Like, obviously, he'd mm. scripted it. But from Dust Till Dawn, I think Devlin said, you know, I wasn't seeking a George Clooney film at this point. Mm. Um, so I don't know if I would have seen it because Rodriguez was still maybe not, not underground, but was, I was not cool enough to have been aware of him yeah. at that point. So him being in the film probably made sure that I saw it. But he's not good. He's not a good actor. And I just wish he would just kind of get that, that like, listen, you're a really good filmmaker and you've, you're, you're a good script writer. Leave the acting to people that can act, but he, uh. Well, I, I'd agree with you for the, for the most part. I think he's good in Pulp Fiction. I think he's fine. It's lovely to see him actually, to put a face to the name. And the same in Reservoir Dogs. He doesn't have much to do apart from get shot in the head and complain. And oh, and the Madonna speech is, is fine. You know, that's kind of iconic now. And mm. I, I, you know the when he when he gets into the Australian accent in Django, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I can't even stick up for him there. You know, 
that that's where he crossed the line, I think, a little bit. But he was an actor before. I, I think he was an actor before he was contemplating being a director because he, when you see actors on screen and you love movies, you kind of want to be, you think you want to be an actor. Yeah. But he realized after a while that he really wanted to be the creator of, of the movie. And I think you're right. That's his lane that he could perhaps yeah. stay in. But if he enjoys it, then, you know, just don't do the Aussie accent. I, I sort of get it. Like, I think you were saying, you know, I, especially for a film like, like this, which is uh, uh, riffing on uh, genre film tropes and kind of going back to the sort of, um, uh, you know, the first dip in like in the proper grindhouse stuff, yeah. you would tend to get just, you know, directors would bring their friends in for films and people would just work a day and they'd work for cheap rates. And um, you would have non-professionals mixed with professionals and, uh, for a film like this, I think it sort of works. You know, he is like a, um, legitimately unsettling in the moment when he's in the motel room patting the yeah, head. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and asking like the lyric quality quite well, doesn't he, Dan? Yeah. But I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's informed by kind of subsequent stories about that era and what we know now of that era. I don't know. Maybe when I was watching it, uh, this week, I did feel kind of icky mm. and, suitably disturbed but a part of me was like oh god is this life imitating art imitating life i yeah. I, I, was, I did have a little moment where i was like this is a bit well i guess some um, uh, a large part of where it goes of uh the sort of the later kind of retrospective fascination with genre films uh which which tarantino helped to kick off in a big way because he was so kind of uh, uh evangelical about some of this stuff like there's a whole swathe of films that I that I like or find fascinating that I would never have heard of if it weren't for the fact that he dug them up and given them a, a, a an avenue. Something like um, I mean, I don't think that people would watch like the female prisoner scorpion series <laughs> in you know in the two thousands if it weren't for the fact that he used the Mako Kaji music in um, Kill Bill and then suddenly these kind of very strange, very violent, very kind of in in many ways a bit off putting but also creatively fascinating like. Japanese exploitation movies are suddenly back in the in the environment, and I think the reason why they're fascinating is even though they're a lot of the content is kind of disturbing. Um, there's a there's a fascination of seeing like these strange men who make them. Like I, I just recently got very very into watching a lot of Russ Mayer movies, mm. which kind of links back mm. to um, late night Channel Five. Yeah, yeah, which well, goes back to Death Proof because you know that that kind of stuff like. Um, uh, the reputation that it had was just like, oh, it's a way for people to see tits. But then when you, I've been reading his, his biography and, and watching these films and it's like, nah, man, there's like, Russ May is a real fucking weird guy and he's putting it out there on screen and it's almost like you can psychoanalyze people. And it's a similar thing with Tarantino. He's got the yeah. kind of the gumption and the bravery to be as weird as he really is out loud. Like everyone knows that he's got a fucking foot obsession. So of course he would have wanted Selma Hayek to stuff her foot in his mouth. He did, he did it yeah. because he's a weirdo and he likes that. And I'm not judging <laughs> it. I'm not judging that as a general thing. But, you know, as we said, like, he is an oddball dude. And I think there's yeah, a... Some people would kind of hide that, wouldn't they? Surely. <laughs> yeah. I would much, it. I would much prefer my artists, creators, whatever, to just wear their weirdness out loud because that's yeah. what they're supposed to be doing if if you know if, if everyone has to hide well, that's their... what we ask of Werner Herzog don't exactly, we? Does. exactly. Right. if people hide their little foibles then I mean what's the point you know anyone can churn out something so yeah I remember a quote oh, if... actually he, he said that when you watch either when you read your script or when you watch your movie you should feel a little bit embarrassed 
Uh, I don't know if that's yeah. him or someone else, but you should, you, there should always be enough of you in there to make you a little bit, mm. at least a little bit self-conscious when people watch it. Apparently, uh, Salma Hayek played the stripper in four rooms in Robert Rodriguez's room uh, on the TV, and you don't mm. you don't see her in any great detail. But he he asked her to do it. You know, you don't need to be naked or anything. Apparently, Tarantino saw that and was like, right, I need to write her into. Oh yeah, I have a thing on that. She was originally called Blonde Death, not Santanico Pandemonium. And the rumour was that it was going to be Madonna as Blonde Death. She would have at least been offered the part. He threatened Summer Hayek by saying, look, I really want you to do that, but uh, Madonna's up for it as well as kind of a ruse to get Summer Hayek to do it. Oh, so that wasn't true? It was just a... Ah, great. Because because Summer Hayek was scared of snakes. Right. And she had to go through therapy before from Dust or Dawn to get ready to have a snake rounder to get yeah. ready for mm-hmm. it. And oh, then they right. said, look, get, get ready, get ready. We've got Madonna lined up if you don't do it because she's not afraid of snakes. And, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. I read I mean, that, Patrick. I, I, I did read that, Patrick, and I saw that some people take an exception to it and sort of ha- what a shady, what a shady trick to play. But in all fairness, yeah, in all fairness, like shady, it's, though, isn't it? It's, it's like I've written you into this thing. The blonde death thing was was honest. Uh, there was actually she was actually white. I think when it was initially written, and I, I, I'm not right. sure what happened. Where I think Rodriguez had some kind of influence wanting to cast Salma, but uh, I'm, I'm not too sure. Shady, but not to say that it justifies uh, the ends justify the means. But you know, Salma Hayek. Granted, it took about two decades to finally put her in a film where she could actually do some acting, and then she, in Frida. But you know, would she have had? Uh, the career that she'd, I know that, I mean, I look at like a film like Wild Wild West where they just mm. hired her to get her ass out. But like, eventually she was able to kind of carve, carve herself into a film that actually meant that she could do some acting as opposed to just gawk at her awesome body. You know, don't get me wrong, she's absolutely stunning, but, um, it did feel like she was just like uh, the Mexican hot pot for, for about 10 years until mm. they realised oh, she can actually act you know team well she was very striking in uh, uh, Desperado there's a scene where yeah. she's introduced oh, and she crosses the road and the cars crash and it's like the perfect way to introduce Salma Hayek to, to the world it does totally work doesn't it when she's of course you know they leave that scene of her doing the, the her dances the full length of a song and that would that would be considered wildly indulgent if it weren't for the fact that it is genuinely pre-hypnotic well the, co- the cool thing about that scene as well is that, that they said on the commentary it's a scene that can it's something that can only exist in the movies because if you if you break it apart um you know she was scared of the snake she's carrying a snake she's falling over every two minutes because this thing is, is like round her neck that's different music playing on the day or that maybe there's no music playing at all i'm not too sure and then uh, it's all kind of slow-mo it's all over cranked different frame rates and they put a different uh, soundtrack piece over it so it's it's something that only exists in in the movie everyone who's on set that day saw something completely different i'm sure they were probably quite concerned that it wouldn't quite pan out but it's an amazing effect when you see it i am i am a big fan of this type of exploitation cinema and they are normally structured in such a way that you know exactly the beats that are coming most of the time they lie to you because the post is great, but actually it never delivers. But this film does deliver. And that dance scene kind of substitutes for the fact that there isn't really any sex. But it is the scene where you're essentially watching a, not gratuitous, but they're normally overly misogynistic. But it, you are, you are, it, it feeds into the, 
the pastiche. And the other thing is that opening. So we have this opening action scene that kind of primes us for the rest of the film because nothing really happens for another 50 minutes after that. Yeah. You know, there's no more real action. There's a couple of suspense scenes when they're crossing the border. But as far as actual action, that's it. You've got the big explosion of Pete's, uh, I mean, it is funny, uh, when, especially with the popcorn. But, you know, you have the big explosion at the beginning and then you're like, that's you now, audience. You don't get anything for another hour. So settle in. And, and we've seen it, Devlin, haven't we? In the exploitation films that we've seen like week on week when we were at uni, they all roughly have the same structure, which is give them something at the beginning and then save everything for the yeah. end. And, the, and in the middle, you've got filler, but this is good filler in this film. Yeah. There's, I mean, yeah, and and always there's lots of just travelling around because that can usually subst- <laughs> they can just substitute for for plot. It's like oh, well, I have to get from here to there, and then I go from from there to there. And, and whereas in this, it, it's um, so um, do you know how much of the the dialogue is because uh, it was credited to I've completely blanked on his name, um, the screenwriter. Yes, Kurtzman. Well, well, um, he's, he, he was just credited a story. That Quentin is the screenwriter. Okay. Right. But yeah, it's a, the the kind of genesis behind it all was it began in 1990 when Reservoir Dogs was kind of gearing up to go, and Quentin brought in an effects house to do the infamous ear cutting scene, um, and it was the K and B company, Kurtzman, uh, Robert Kurtzman, Greg Nicotero, and Howard Berger. Right. And the, the agreement was that they would do the movie for nothing. They do the ear, ear slashing for nothing. If Tarantino penned a screenplay for Kurtzman's story, which was from Dust Till Dawn. And it was initially supposed to be a showcase for his makeup effects work that he was going to direct. And I think Quentin got about $1,500 as well. So, uh, this was actually his first paid screenwriting gig. And he kind of met them through uh, a movie called Intruder, a 1989 slasher film, which was produced by Lawrence Bender, uh, who who went on to produce Tarantino stuff. And Scott Spiegel directed it, and he's connected to Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell and Mm -hmm. all of those guys. And so they all kind of got together. And and Scott Spiegel gave Robert Kurtzman uh, True Romance and Natural Born Killers as examples of what tarantino could do and that's what what got him hired and one of the little pieces of evidence that you can find is that the ezekiel speech from pulp fiction the famous uh samuel L. jackson speech was supposed to be originally for jacob when he was preparing his stand against the, va- the vampires so it was originally going to be harvey keitel that said the the samuel L. jackson monologue which would have been kind of interesting to- well do you want to talk about clooney yeah i think we should well, i think we should quentin yeah. directed clooney in an episode of er and one of the things that they sort of remark upon on the on the commentary was that out of all the characters on ER, that George Clooney uh, as Doctor Doug Ross uh, would uh, would be the only character that would be like one plus one equals two. I'm going to kick that guy's ass. It was the quote that they used. <laughs> uh, there's this, there's an abusive father storyline in ER. There's a kid that shows up with bruises, and of course he, he doesn't go by the book. You know, he beats up the <laughs> the abusive father, and he's like the only character on that show that you'd you'd buy doing that. Uh, there's also are you Matt? Are you telling me that Anthony Edwards <laughs> calls yeah. on Hoots, wouldn't kick someone's ass? He's by the book. How wrong man. are you? He'd put it in the. <laughs> he'd call into child services, but you know Clooney would be out there beating him up. And there was another episode where he played um, 
uh, he, he saved a drowning kid who was trapped in the storm drain. I don't know if you remember it. I loved the first seven seasons of ER until Mark dies. And then I kind of jumped, jumped out. But um, I, I, what you were saying about George's delivery, I, I agree with now. I think he, uh, along with Samuel L. Jackson, he's one of my favorite ever actors as far as delivering Tarantino's dialogue. He has all these strange punctuation points. I said, plant mm. yourself, plants don't talk. All that stuff, he delivers it. It feels like exactly as it's written. Perhaps it's because yeah. Tarantino mm-hmm. stood next to him. Maybe he's giving him line readings. I don't know. All the Mr. 44 stuff about I have six yeah. little friends and they can all run faster than you can. I'm going to ask you one question and all I want is a yes or no answer. Do you want to live through this? Yes. Good. Rule number one, no noise. No questions. If you make a noise... Mr. 44 makes a noise. If you ask a question, Mr. 44 answers it. Now, are you absolutely, positively clear about rule number one? Yes. Rule number two. You do what we say when we say it. If you don't, see rule number one. Rule number three, don't you ever try and fucking run on us. Because I got six little friends, and they can all run faster than you can. It's the, the sentence just before that is the one that gets me when, um, he looks up at Richie and she says, this conversation's over. And like a little kind of, kind of fake grin across his face. He it's, does those little mm-hmm. flashes of a grin a lot. That's kind of his yeah. trademark. Isn't yeah. It? He does, he, he does it when he discovers the, uh, the bank teller dead in the bed. He yes. sort of looks and it's beautifully edited. I love the way that we just see the kind of, um, flashes. The quick, yeah. The quick flash at it. Um, but George kind of, he almost like has a prophetic laugh. And when he sees it, he's like, he's done it a fucking again. And then, and mm-hmm. then he flips, but it's really, really strong. And, um, and I, I remembered not enjoying his performance back when, but I think maybe I was just harboring the, you know, the, the Joey Tribbiani ER pastiche <laughs> yeah, maybe. comic, you know, doctor on soap thing. But he's really, it, really good in this film. It's, it's to do with how really he's shot good. as well. He's shot from below. Robert Rodriguez described them as hero shots. He said, whatever happens with this movie, you're going to be a film star after this. And mm. it, it happened. You know, perhaps this wasn't a com- commercially successful film, but Clooney went on to do pretty much whatever he wanted. And what I like about him in this is that he never looks embarrassed. He never winks at the camera. He's never insincere with his performance. Even though he's in a, a an exploitation vampire movie, he commits fully. He... You know, which I really respect because I'm assuming looking at his choices ever since that maybe this isn't entirely his cup of tea. Um, he never go, he never does another one of these. Gave you know. him a good path to to the Cohen brothers. Though. Yeah, I was thinking yeah, this exactly. is yeah. a really well suited to the Cohen script and style. He's the kind of roguish um, uh, outlaw, which you know, a, a mm-hmm. guy who's you know he's come from from ER and uh, he's in, in he was in this and One Fine Day in the same year right this was his his, yeah. his movie his movie rate right, this because i mean he'd been bouncing around as a working actor for ages he was in fucking murder she wrote and stuff you know a few years before yeah, and returned yeah. to horror high his, his filmography is <laughs> fascinating when you go back like, he's he's it's kind of great that you know it took him a long time to get his his break and then when he did and he was clearly the breakout star of er he jumped on it and i thought it was his it was quite smart like that you know mm-hmm. in the same year you've got a a, a Michelle Pfeiffer kind of, you know, a smarter rom-com, but still a, a roughly in the romantic comedy genre. So he, he gets to display his leading man credentials over that in the, in that branch. And then over here, yeah. he's like this kind of edgy criminal type who manages to re, uh, uh, retain a, um, 
a sense of like leading man charm, even sure, though like this gets him the peacemaker, right? Stuff like yeah. that. You know, he doesn't get the peacemaker yeah. without it. And uh, and out of sight, which saved his career after he was Batman. Yeah, which is great. I love out how, of sight. How quickly he was he was Batman. It's three films. One, two. Yeah, it's crazy, it's, isn't it? It's actually crazy. He's in Batman and Robin, and of course, like a a, a lesser guy that would have sunk them because I mean that was well, it would have it could have lazy beat him, couldn't it? it, it totally, yeah. <laughs> Talking of the hero aspect, though, there's there's a bit I really love in the film where in the Titty Twisters having an argument at the bar, and the guy says, "I'm going to count to three Yeah, you know, and he goes one, and George Clooney immediately responds two, you know, <laughs> daring this guy. Yeah, I yeah. really love that hero moment and. When he talks about, I don't believe in vampires, but I believe in my own two eyes, and I can see them. He, yeah. all of that is so well delivered. Well, the, the bit that gets me, Patrick, about the whole—it's uh, like a holistic thing—is that if you look at his character on a piece of paper, he's a fucking scumbag, and by the end, he is our hero. And I'm, I'm with him the whole time. So you need an actor who is likable, who's got charisma you can go with because on the page and on the screen his actions i mean he's he's kidnapping people but he's got that he's got that one little thing hasn't he he's got a code that the 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 infamous code that's what separates him from a professional thief which is which is what 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 carries on he's a professional thief in out of sight he only took jennifer lopez because he had to he's a professional thief in uh in oceans 11 he never hurts anyone at all in oceans 11 it's telling that we quite like him and we're kind of rooting for him at the end because it becomes the film that it is in the second uh, in the second half which is a mm. you know all-out vampire thing but it, in the first half if we're looking at the first half and separating these two two tones and shift tones is, is it enough that he he says to his brother this isn't how we work. This he doesn't really talk to his brother about him on a moral stance, and that you should mm. be raping and killing people, you know. And and because no, he just he chastises him though, doesn't he? Yeah, he says, this is not what. Is this what you think I am? Which which is, I think, an interesting. Sort but he of doesn't. Thing, he doesn't yeah. chastise him, Gally, about the act. He chastises no, him about true. being caught. You know, mm. it's yeah. more of yeah. a. Yeah. He's saying and, it more of a. I don't want to be caught. You know, you, you're making mistakes rather than a. You know, a disgusted thing, and yeah. is it is it a brotherly love thing? Is it a forgiving thing because of family, or yeah, there's, well, there's kind of a problem there. He's, he's kind of paternal with him, you know. He's he's yeah, fixing his hand and feeding him, and you know, it's yeah, yeah it's like he's. Uh, so I've, I don't, maybe it echoes the bit that, that is in the opening monologue where they talk about the woman who owns the diner and the and the son. Yes, and it's like it's, mm-hmm. the, the sheriff says something like, "Oh, that's her burden." I yeah, I got the impression yeah. that like Richie is. She's got a cross to bear, taking care of. Yeah. Him. Yeah, yeah. I do. Uh, I, I want to go back to this: the two halves, though, and and the not to say inconsistency because the tone shifts. But the one thing that I I think could make the film better, watching it now, is the so the way that from Dustal Dawn's constructed, it's it's the night it's uh, the night of living dead. It's the the conflict is internal to the group, so that's the drama, not necessarily the vampires, not necessarily the, zomb- the zombies. It's all about the group dynamic, and I do feel like they drop that. You know, the moment the vampires come in, I wanted watching it now. I thought, how great would it be instead of having the nihilistic ending that we have, go further. So when Kate's at the end with George, he is responsible for your infi- entire family's death, not necessarily the vampires. I would have loved it if she'd just been like. You're dead too. Or, you know, like there'd be a moment when she could rescue him and she chooses not to. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
I think they could have done that. Now I know that, yeah, I know they didn't because obviously I'm not suggesting that they agreed with George. This is going to be a star vehicle, but I think, I think that probably would have satisfied the thread, the thread all the way through because the, they, they shift, you know, when they, when they get to the titty twister, everything changes. The tone, the tone changes completely. And all of a sudden, Richie and Scott, he's like, if you want to dance, kid, I'll get you one. And all of a sudden, they're kind of like chumming up. Yeah. Like Kaitel has got a begrudging respect with Seth because he's helped him yeah. out and he's lost control because that ape touched his shoulder. But they never, ever address the fact that, listen, you two are fucking scumbags and you kidnapped us. And they never hold a grudge on that. And mm. I kind of wish they had. Instead, Kate's like, hey, Seth, can I come with you? It's like, no, what are you on about? He's, he's responsible for you, your entire family being uh, destroyed. But you don't, yeah, you don't get the, uh, you, you're not leaving the audience on a high there. You are, uh, no, you're bumming them out, which, yeah, probably would have, would have been, <laughs> would have been fascinating, actually. I agree with you there, Gally, especially when you consider Kotel, uh, Jacob, Kotel's character. And he has the, the last great bit of his, for me, in a kind of character sense, is when he says to uh, Seth, are you, are you such a fucking loser you don't really realize mm. when you when you've lost? Mm. He says, I'm not telling you, I'm asking a question. Mm. And I, I don't know, I feel like Kaitel's morality then disappears. You know, his backstory is quite fascinating that he's lost faith and I wish they developed that just a little bit more uh, towards the end, but Mm-hmm. Of course, it's almost sidetracked with. Well, vampires turning up. Yeah, Kaitel's amazing in this film. He's so so good in this film. Like yeah. you, yeah. you think for for what it is, which is a, a sort of kind of proper B movie exploitation, dealing with pure. I mean, this is what Tarantino's great at as well, isn't he? Like black comic archetypes. So the pastor who has lost his faith yeah. is like. It's it's up there with Nam Vet talking about Nam <laughs> as far as like just pure <laughs> stereotype. But but Kaitel proper sells it and I, I messaged you guys offline and I wasn't joking. The reason I know he's so strong in this is his motivation for pulling over in the first place is weak sore. <laughs> like, oh I just wanna I just wanna stay in a proper bed, <laughs> so I'll stay in this shithole motel. That looks like, you know, I mean, how many people have banged in that bed? And Kaitel, when he talks about it, it's like he's floating on a cloud. How come you want to stop anyways, Dad? I'm exhausted. Exhausted? Just lie in the back, Dad. I can drive us into Mexico. I just bet you would. Don't even think about it. Besides, I want to have just one night's sleep in an honest-to-goodness bed. Beds in the home are okay, but... You're not like a real bit. But there's a scene where he's kind of nonchalantly talking about turning into a vampire within the hour. And it's like, that's Harvey Keitel. He's going to turn into a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be a lapdog of Satan. It's like you never, you'd never usually see that. It, it's just amazing. That's one of my favorite things about it. The caliber of actors that were attracted to it through Tarantino. And they, they don't really belong here. It's like, a, it's a freak of nature film. It, it's, it feels like a one-off. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm, Really into it. Shall we talk Juliet as well? Kind of comes in and uh, sort of steals the film a little bit, doesn't she, Juliet Lewis? Mm. With her little oddball performance. It's very strange line deliveries, which is always a lot of fun. <laughs> Richie, would you do me a favour and eat my pussy for me, please? 
Sure. Just the way she looks at the camera, it's really startling. You see, you see uh, the world through Richie's eyes. That's why that's kind of really yeah. freaky. Um, that this maniac and you actually, how many times do you get put into the, to the shoes of a character like that? So that was kind of, kind of effective, I think. I would like to have known what Rodriguez said to her before, <laughs> as far as how you're going to deliver this line. This is Juliette Lewis, who is child actress in Cape Fear. And it's not a great film for me, the remake of Cape Fear, but she is great in it. And California, which is awesome. It's one mm. of those like 90s films that doesn't really get enough love. And she's great in it there and now she's in this vampire exploitation film and she's turning to camera saying richie would you eat my pussy <laughs> so whatever she says i was just like what did you say to her to get her to, into that headspace but in, in, in full tilt boogie there's a there's just a little bit of the there's like two or three takes of of her turning to camera and doing it and complaining that the the coffee she's drinking is you know, putting her off and her performance <laughs> has, got, has gone strange. It's kind of interesting, but I think she's, she's very good in it. But then she does some, some pervy stuff in, uh, in Cape Fear as well with her and, and De Niro. Mm. Or, oh yeah. Kind of yeah, getting yeah. into it. So it's, it's not like she's been defiled by this film. I think she's already been, been through the mill. Matt, you've got quite a bit of, um, knowledge on the history of this one. Is there any, is there anything about the um, the actor who plays Scott? Because ah, I, I thought, was that was that just like a body count thing? Because he's got no real characterization. When, when I was watching it, I thought, why is he in it? First of all, and who is yeah, he? Yeah, why is he in it? And uh, he was an um, introduced in, in like an introducing credit. In, in he did, the which means it's his first film, right? Did he win a competition? Golly, <laughs> <laughs> that's cruel, but perhaps fair. <laughs> Uh, it, aside from being a clothes horse for the Precinct 13 shirt, which is very revealing as well, the, the John Carpenter connection. Yes, very cool. Um, Rodriguez is very influenced by John Carpenter. The first film he ever made was a, an animation, uh, version of, or something that was influenced by Escape from New York. And he had like the laser disc or the, the, the vinyl cover as the background of the animation. So he's really into, to Carpenter, who uh, also, uh, Assault on Precinct 13 was a siege movie and this is, kind of turns into a siege in, in many ways. So maybe it's a little reference. Oh, yes. To that. Yeah. As far as the kid actor, uh, the only connection I thought I could make is that he has some kind of relation to, to Gordon Liu, who played like Pai Mei and some other characters in, in Kill Bill. But I tried to look it up. I don't think there's any relation. And, uh, right. when I Googled him, I, I found some students that went to Harvard with that name and, uh, that his filmography is pretty bare. So I, yeah, he honestly, a, I have no couple, clue why he's here. A couple of appearances as like, you know, uh, boy number two in like TV series from the late nineties. Right. And he produced uh, something yeah. eventually, but I, I don't know how involved he is in the film world, but yeah, it was, it's kind of a peculiar, thing to see wasn't it and, and it's just an odd one isn't made it because... as a chinese adoptive son it just kind of felt kind of an unusual thing to kind of crowbar in but um mm. yeah I, I couldn't find anything the, the the film from dust to dawn wasn't like a huge success in the box office and i do wonder if it was released now i think it would do gangbusters maybe not right now because obviously theaters are shut but you, you know what i mean like mm. in the last sort of couple of years i think this type yeah. of film has become very popular as in the idea of you know we we've been doing it on discord watching basically trashy 70s 80s exploitation films weekly and you know you can probably attribute some some of the success to the guys at red letter media on youtube who have kind of you know popularized the idea of going yeah. back and watching these sort of trashy films and it's become its own kind of subgenre of watching 
these sort of moment in time films that will never get made again. And this feels like a good gateway drug to kind of get yeah, you into absolutely. it. Because, because it's an exploitation film which you don't need to have ever seen any in order to get yeah. the joke. It's uh, for me, certainly it was a, it was a gateway to that. And, and I think, um, when we say that this is now a thing that people do, that they'll watch kind of old films and they'll, they'll kind of dig up, like I was saying, crate digging and, and that you end up with the stuff that you would, uh, uh, Tarantino as a curator at the time, it always really annoyed me. I think because I said, like I was kind of on a bit of a, everyone else loves him. So maybe I'll be a bit of a dick and not really like him all that much. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was, it was, it was very much just sort of late teen rebellion of everyone's into this thing. So maybe I'll try and, assume that it's shite but he was doing a lot of this quentin tarantino present stuff and at the time i remember thinking like this is a guy who's just so high on his own ego that he's just taking credit for all these other people's work which of course is completely not what he was doing he was using his clout to to shine a light on things that he liked and it didn't matter when it was from if you think about the kind of filmmakers that got a bump from from tarantino's uh name being associated with their work you've got guys like um chunking express so uh one guy why would have would have would have got a, a bump from it. Bong Joon Ho, he brought over uh, the host, I believe. Um, yep. uh, Mu Zhang, because he presented Hero. And these mm-hmm. are these are great great filmmakers that we'd be all kind of worse off if we didn't have them, you know, presented to us in a way that. Um, so when when guys like Red Letter Media are, are doing these great videos of finding these old VHS tapes and DVDs, would anyone really be doing that? And would these guys have like, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers on YouTube if it weren't for the fact that. Tarantino especially and Rodriguez as well um kind of popularized this and made it cool to be this mm. into finding the the most obscure thing you can find and you know putting John Saxon in your film for for, oh, for nice. two minutes for two two minutes not even two minutes is oh, it? we, we like, should yeah, mention that because when I rewatched it I noticed that Kelly Preston and John Saxon yes, both yeah. died this year so it sort of dawned on me that they're both no longer with us and she played uh, Kelly Hogue and Tarantino was so happy with her as the the news reporter that he'd written he was like I'm going to put Kelly Hogue in all of my movies but it, I don't know why but it didn't it didn't quite happen and he wanted her to return as well kelly preston in, in all the roles right. and she was married to travolta right and earlier today during a daylight liquor store robbery in big springs the gecko brothers killed another texas ranger earl mcgraw and liquor store clerk pete bottoms that changes the death toll to 16 five texas rangers eight police officers three civilians and one hostage bank teller and mother of four gloria hill for the time being, we're very confident that we'll apprehend these fugitives within the next 48 hours. The Bureau, local law enforcement, and the Texas Rangers have all joined in forming a dragnet to snare Seth and Richard Gecko. Is it safe to assume that because of the death count involved and the loss of life of law enforcement officers, that the Bureau, the Rangers, and the police force are taking this manhunt personally? I would say that's a very safe assumption. That, that's very natural bone killers, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, very, very. There's another yeah. waitress and scene that feels very natural born kill. It's just the way the waitress sort of saunters over to the Fuller family when, when they're first introduced. And it, I know Tarantino hates natural born killers, but that felt like a little nod to, uh, how he would have done it. Well, let's, let's get to it. Cause I know that the, the splatterhouse stuff is, um, it's so much fun, isn't it? Mm. When it all kind of turns and, and 
becomes chaos. And all of a sudden, we we flip, not just in tone, but these characters come out of nowhere, Sex Machine and Frost. <laughs> and I genuinely... Tiny well, little whip <laughs> stealing that beer. I've forgotten that <laughs> completely. It's fucking brilliant. <laughs> it just, it, it's amazing, isn't it? It really brought such a big grin to my face when it all turns because i just forgot how silly it was like mm. i remember it being kind of not not serious but like a little bit evil dead too but not so heavy but actually it's ridiculous isn't yeah it? it's actually well, was this your introduction to tom savini because i had no idea who he was like prior to, yeah. to seeing this yeah it was and i and i uh and i think most audiences would probably make the mistake i thought oh well, he's in the film so he must have done all the effects mm. and obviously he didn't he's just in the film as an actor and what a great actor he is by the way great <laughs> when he when he gets his cod piece out and he just pulls that look <laughs> there's also a great look where um salma's dancing just watch him next time you watch it yeah. when Salma's dancing just just watch Sex Machine. He's just, he's just uh, aghast at the whole thing. It's really funny. He's got the same expression for about five minutes. I love that um, Fred Williamson's still stacking his dominoes. Yeah. Everyone <laughs> else is completely enraptured and he's still trying. And you see her, like her feet going past. Yeah. And he's you hear the dominoes fall. He's got his hands around them. <laughs> it's, your, it's your opening line though, Devlin, is, is the way uh, Sweeney just... <laughs> the delivery of his introduction. <laughs> Sex machine, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best line in the fucking film because mm. his delivery is, I mean, straight deader than deadpan. It's amazing. I love the I love the fight as well between him and Treo. There's a bit where he's on the pool table and he just does a little like little leap, and it's like a little oh, leap yeah. like you play hopscotch. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he jumps on. It's so much fun. It's the cool thing there where, where Danny Trejo um, kind of burns up, which, which is something that Quentin was really pleased with. He added to the vampire lore. He felt uh, like this idea that when vampires die, they just burn up and disappear mm. and just turn to ash. And he said he was really disappointed mm. that they didn't continue that in any of the sequels or on the TV show. Probably didn't have any money. No. But when, uh, then when Danny Trejo kind of burns up on the pool table, his eyes go into the, uh, yeah. the pockets. Of, of the of the pool table, which I'd never noticed for a while, and it was pointed out to me. I just thought that was really you funny. hear that really over the top uh, uh, sound effect as well of the the pool balls dropping down into the pockets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did have a look at Fred Williamson's um, filmography, and some of the titles are outrageous. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> as far as like black exploitation titles, there are some. I mean, I'm not going to say them on on this now because they've not. Yeah, one before. of them is particularly shocking, isn't it? But I, I remember him from Starsky and Hutch more than anything. In, in Full Tilt Boogie, they do an interview with him in full vampire makeup, and he's talking about his production company, uh, Pole Boy Productions, P-O-apostrophe-B-O-Y. He says it like that. It's great. And he talks about No Way Back, which is his first, one of the first films he made and sold at Cannes. And he talks about some other films he's done about uh, with, with Gary Busey and uh, one called South Beach. And mm-hmm, Peter right. Fonda, and he said he's interested in making making money with it with his movies. It's just so much fun, but I, I do think it's the moment where some people are just going to check out. They're like, "Wait a minute, this is not what was promised." But if you go back and watch the film, there are not hints that it's going to be vampires, but there are hints that this film is going to be silly. Like there, you know, the popcorn when yeah. Pete, Pete gets <laughs> uh, gets burnt up, starts popping, and um, there's another there's another moment with the. The hotel guy was just like, what the, what the, <laughs> okay. amazing. what yeah. are you, what? Um, <laughs> Mark Still Lawrence, he, he was in um, Man with the Golden Gun. He played uh, the agent that goes to Scaramanga's Island before Roger Moore and he gets killed by, um, 
by Christopher Lee. <laughs> and he has, he has just like 30 seconds, like not even that. And, and he has a memorable performance. He's the perfect mean old, ba- he's credited as mean old bastard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's yeah. so ornery. He's just like, he can't even get out a, a syllable in <laughs> a sentence. <laughs> It's great though, right? And, and there are loads of that. And the, like I said, the moment you get to the titty twister and the fourth wall is broken by Mr. Pussy, you know, (laughs) you should, you should really be noticing that the tone is about to change. And I love the band, like when the band and everyone turns the vampires, just the fact that they're playing, they're playing body parts. Inflatable meat guitar. It's so cheap looking. (laughs) And when does that happen as well? Do the, when do, when do the instruments get exchanged? It's a, it's a very good question. Why do they explode? Yeah, yeah, everything everything starts exploding. <laughs> the one that makes me laugh is the um, the single bullet explosion when because the film again I mentioned before how nihilistic it is, but if you think about it in in real terms, like you've got this group of characters and Scott, who we've talked about, may not be a real actor. It seems like a very you know we've not had really any characterization, but seems like a nice nice enough boy. Um, just the way he gets absolutely ripped to bits and then gets blown up by his sister to a single bullet is just, it then just becomes the last, doesn't it? And it's the same with Kaitao, like, the turn becomes, it goes from like drama to pure comedy, the way that Kaitao is sort of slithering around with his makeup. It's very inconsistent compared to the, the first half of the film, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's madly all over the place and it, I, I was watching it thinking, I enjoy this sequence a lot because the twist still just wows me. And I think that's the intention. But I mean, I think they throw the rule book out and just do whatever they want here because you've got Salma Hayek who looks a bit lizardy in her um, mm-hmm. vampiric mm-hmm. appearance. All the other vampires look like they're from Buffy the Vampire Slayer extras. In a way. <laughs> and then, then you well, get... Some of them have like proper <laughs> bat faces, like the big yeah, kind of and then I, I'm just looking like Buffy's actually like a year later. I was trying to make a link to see if anyone worked on the same things because it did remind me uh, of each other, but not perhaps. really. And then the bats yeah. come in and there's thousands of bats, mm-hmm. but not as many bat like vampires there. <laughs> and then you've got like the weird bit when Tarantino, who transforms into what Tarantino looks like now, but then, but <laughs> 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 then. Uh, but then when his brother, when Seth looks at him, he then returns to normal features just with fang tooth. And it's, you know, bullets explode some, some are mushy, some of yeah. them get staked through the, the stomach, not the chest. It's very all over the place and weird. Some can be killed by chandelier alone. Chandelier, yeah. And you know, <laughs> yeah. that, that was, that's something that did annoy me. I, I wanted some hike to be like the big bad antagonist kind of, you know, leader of the vampires and she's off pretty quickly which yeah is, is upsetting because she she's after having like the sexiest scene of all time and being introduced amazingly in this film she's off too quick for my liking mm. there is a deleted scene there where it's more of a deleted shot actually where she slithers away on the ground i put it in the in the playlist um but yeah they deleted it for whatever reason right. she the, the, the morph when she morphs it's definitely reptilian and there's yeah. kind of snakes she's holding a snake and the snakes beside her when she's dancing so there's a reptilian vibe oh. there's also a connection to the gecko brothers name Ge- yeah um, yeah, they yeah. called the gecko brothers which is kind of a little bit of foreshadowing well, apparently the snake mm. is symbolic of an like an old and this this relates to the end of the film and you see the temple but an old mm. mayan kind of folklore is that 
the undead have a snake that lives within them. So this this oh, snake yeah. is the cause of all the vampires. And oh, there great. is a loose... Yeah. It's actually explored in either the second or third film or the TV series of from Dust to mm-hmm. Dawn. It's explored in one of those more. But I love that map painting at the end, by the way. Map painting's amazing. The way it looks. Yeah. But then Savini turns into a rat as well, which reminded me of, <laughs> of the witches, which was bizarre. Well, he becomes like almost the big villain, doesn't he? Because obviously he does the turn which I do again it's played for laughs I love the way he's like his teeth and then the way he turns yeah. his comic it's just yeah and I love the way he eats with, like funny. Fred Williamson doesn't he say something like you son of a bitch <laughs> you bit me it's like it's so much fun yeah you bit but, me. But, like I said before, this is a film for people that have never seen exploitation films that can enjoy it because they understand the references. You know the character who talks about Naum. And so when he, when he goes into it, you're like, oh no, he's going to talk about it for 10 minutes. Oh my God. I love the way that they just mute the sound and then, and then we see the transformation of Sex Machine. And it's, yeah. it's funny, isn't it? Because he's like, I just killed one. When he's acting two, out, three, corrupting <laughs> people and it's fucking hilarious. But then those two turn a lot quicker than Kaitel does, you know, just to say that the laws are a bit messed That's up. That's another inconsistency. They yeah. turn when they want them yeah. to, don't they? Yeah. I wonder how Edgar Wright would have maybe handled this type of film, whether he would have done like he did with Shaun of Dead and Hot Fuzz, where yeah. there are the the hints are planted right at the beginning of where the film's going to mm-hmm. go. I think he'd have definitely set it up earlier. It would be too comedic with it if Edgar did it. I think. But that that's that's it, though, isn't it? It'd be a consistent tone throughout the whole film, whereas this mm. is mm. proper heist, ca- like crime caper at the beginning, and then it's it's two different films. Yeah, well, the intention yeah. behind it, they said, was in the documentary that in a lot of horror novels, you spend a lot of time with the characters before the horrific things start to happen. And that's one of the great things about Stephen King's work. Yeah. Uh, so what they, what they tried to do was spend an awful lot of time with these characters before you sort of plunge them into into hell. And it worked. Uh, it, that was their intent. So it worked on that level. But some people just wanted the the tone to continue. They they weren't happy with these characters suddenly being thrown into something else. I suppose that's where the so, grindhouse uh, aspect comes in. You know, we know that that's where their interest is as well. You know, yeah, there, there is yeah. there is a you know, it's on bang on an hour vampires. And mm. they've split this film. It's, it, it feels deliberately, you know, it's not an accident and it is a creative thing. And there's no real big antagonist in the film. You know, it, it's his brother, yeah, it's Kaitel, it's Summer Hayek for a second, it's Savini, yeah. it's vampires. Ka- Kaitel is the one I'm most interested in who's not a vampire, but him and Seth together and them at loggerheads and mutual respect and understanding. That's kind of where my core of the film wants to be throughout but then i'm kind mm. of wowed by the vampiric like gore fest at the end that i don't i've forgotten about it in a way until i think about it now with you guys mm. what if they kept uh, harvey as a vampire for longer and had him speaking yeah. oh god yeah. I mean, just giving him a bit more to do before they took him out if they'd put if they'd pumped up the religious aspect with him and say the vampires right. are drawn to him for some reason and make it allegorical that way that would have been incredible and and because he looks great too when he turns he does look great yeah because because i guess kate becomes a sort of final girl ish but she if you don't have juliette lewis in that that role then that role would be as superfluous as scott in a way because she's yeah. just there to be kind of gawked at by quentin tarantino for a little bit of the film and then she's sort yeah. of just We forgot there. to mention the scene when she's on the toilet as well and cheech is leering on her with her knickers down there as well because 
Uh, there's a lot of male gaze in this film that is mm. exploit, you know, exploitation film, and uh, yeah, it, it all it all marries up to all of that. But yeah. that mm. she survives is maybe um, a loose kind of redemptive thing on the female characters in the film. But far be it for me to be the person to decide whether or not it's uh, it's it's you know <laughs> misogynistic or, uh, or or unpleasant for for women, but certainly um, it's. Uh, well, I watched it with with Chiara, and and there was kind of no uncomfortableness in our house. But uh, I can see, like, I mean, it's yeah, it's a nineties exploitation movie made by very very for all their uh, um, Tarantino's aptitude uh, at times with with uh, with female characters and dialogue and giving them a lot of agency. They're also still kind of you know very blokey male filmmakers in in a lot of ways. When you get to the titty twister could have been a lot cheaper in its appearance and aesthetic some height could have easily been asked to expose herself even more like mm-hmm. the other girls but because of it's a kind of workplace for them and that they're like an angler fish for these bikers and uh yeah. and truckers to get in and lure them in and i think that's the whole like it is it is super sexy some height's dancing and i think that's part of the lure here and it makes it makes sense this bit me. I thought it really the, helped that the set was so lurid and ridiculous yeah. and, and big yeah. enough. Like, uh, uh, that's pretty, pretty much the, the main thing about the, the later section of this is that it's all indoors. Like, just, just thank God it's big enough. Like that mm-hmm. the, the, the titty twister is ridiculous. It's got flames shooting out of it and it's completely covered <laughs> in neon. And, and, che- <laughs> and Cheech, uh, Cheech Marin is just yelling at us in a, in the most ridiculous over the top way. And then when you get inside, it's a huge, that huge, it's a one tracking shot, right? That goes around like a big, yeah, track. yeah. It's the, it's the Pulp Fiction shot, isn't it? It's- yeah. I wanted to mention that because it's, it's, it's a great looking film, I think. And there is a, there's a parallel between that and what you just said about Pulp Fiction and the Jackrabbit Slims shot. They talk about when you walk onto a set and you see all of the amazing work that the designers have done. And then you look through one of those directors, viewfinders and you know 90 percent of it disappears and it's like well how am i going to show off the amazing work that that people have uh, have done so they in in both movies they did exactly what you said they do a 360 establishing shot just to show off everything and it's so cool in in both movies they're fun shots to work on as well really oh yeah i i really like working on scenes like that because you get you get 360 um, I've just worked on a Guy Ritchie film and there was a few 360. Tricky to light though, right? Tricky to light, tricky to hide everything, tricky to, to, yeah, like really tricky days, but you spend time on them and you spend time on them for a reason. And it's like you said, mm. to show off the set to, to, well, you know, you've got to have a purpose in the story to do it as well. But I, I mm. really like working on those scenes. They're good. The audience recognizes when you're hiding something. You know, we, I know you weren't on our free Jack discussion, mm. but the warehouse stalking sequence in <laughs> yes. that. Yeah. It reminded me so much of yeah. like, if you just orientate us slightly and you don't even need to do a 360 shot. Mm-hmm. It's about yeah. how you cover. Um, and I, I love these types of siege films when it's, you know, spam in a can characters stuck in one location it's something that I've, I've always loved you know we talked about it in aliens as well and it is just about how you shoot it what how you uh, your composition and the audience will know if they've seen the same backdrop several times and in this they they manage to get away with it because if you think about the individual 
kind of gore fest sequences where each character gets their own the sort of like mini section of kills. It's supposed to be in the same spot, in the same kind of location, same space, but you don't really question the fact that sex machines over there taking oh. some vampire's head off and George Clooney's supposed to be over here and Juliette Lewis is supposed to be over there. You just kind of go with it because you're like, well, that's that corner, that's that corner. And they, you know, Rodriguez manages to, um, I think skillfully shoot and edit in a way that I never really questioned the space. Well, it's so frenetic. It's like abstract at times. You're not really sure where you are. I found it interesting though. Like I usually associate Rodriguez more outdoorsy. Uh, you know, it's Mm. kind of, it was weird to look back and think, wow, we've been inside. Like those kind of big dusty vistas, right? Yeah. I love the way he shoots the outside, but here he's inside, uh, quite a lot, which, um, I thought it was it was very yeah. different to, to to experience of like earlier Rodriguez. I've got a, a little thing on influences. Could we talk about a couple of influences? I I put Near Dark um, because I watched that recently, and there's a few things that we can tie the movies together with. There's the the Winnebago, which is prominent in in Near Dark. There's kind of a rock and roll vampire aesthetic, <laughs> yeah. and like the, the, the idea of uh, turning. That uh, they they even use the phrase turning. I'm not sure. Who used that first? I guess it's more of a zombie trope than a than a vampire trope, perhaps. Mm. Um, this idea of superhuman strength, uh, the, the, some of the Bill Paxton dialogue, um, you know, friend of the show, uh, Bill Paxton, uh, it's just very reminiscent of some of Tarantino's stuff that he's doing. There's a lot of wisecracks and taunting that goes on. It's sort of, they both play with law, vampire law. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, uh, th- there's the motel room face off and even uh, this idea of vampires exploding when sunlight hits them. That's all <laughs> yeah. very near dark. And there's even the, the tagline, which was on the VHS for, um, near dark. And it's at dawn, they hide at dusk, they wake. And I don't think that's a, a coincidence really. I think that probably comes from Robert Kurtzman initially, yeah. I think. And yeah, it was probably, uh, uh, one of the things that kicked it off. Well, Matt, here's another influence, and I know Devlin's going to enjoy this. I mean, I don't think John Carpenter's Vampires gets made if it wasn't from Dust Till Dawn. Rock and roll and vampires. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Um, Well, I was telling you guys that uh, um, it's it's not a good film, but uh, um, that riff is amazing. And I went to see John Carpenter play live uh, a couple of Halloweens back, um, the Troxy, in in Limehouse. and obviously he was playing with his little, his little group and he was playing all the, all the hits and like people were really cheering a lot of stuff that you wouldn't sort of expect. Like the, the score for Christine got a really big reception. Um, and even though the film is, is not great and he himself would, would probably tell you that still, uh, cranked out that riff from vampires because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but it totally suits like the soundtrack for this. I've been listening to it all week in preparation for discussing this uh, film with you guys and I've just been. You know, we not really mentioned it, and before we get into our summaries, I'll just say that, you know, Rodriguez, uh, for all his faults, and, you know, damn you, Wikipedia, for, for debunking every hero that I've ever had, but, you know, for all his faults, you know, what a champion for Mexican and Latino actors, and, you know, there's no way that half of this cast would have been in this film had it not been for him, obviously, casting who he knows, um, which is, you know, Mexican actors, and, and that's just great, isn't it? And the, the soundtrack kind of, uh, follows on from that, despite, you know, too, too many ZZ Top tracks. It's, um, you know, it's got a real kind of eclectic <laughs> yeah. mix on of... On the soundtrack, 
uh, a lot of the soundtrack is just the band that we see in the Tizzy Twister, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and that's Tito what I mean, though. Like, yeah. <laughs> would I have ever listened to Tito? No. But I absolutely How do they? Why do they disappear the in the manner they do? They just blow up themselves. <laughs> well, he just yeah. says, fuck, fuck, <laughs> fuck you, you doesn't he? Like, like you, everybody. <laughs> good night. <next laughs> good night. <laughs> that's great. And also, I watched um, The Faculty recently because um, we were contemplating that one for our um, Halloween uh, listings in the bathroom stall of uh, when when Elijah Wood goes in. There's a Tito and Tarantula group, a piece of graffiti in in there as well. So that's another little Rodriguez tie-in. Just a quick one as well. I really like the the effect on Tarantino's hand with the hole. Yeah, that's, yeah. Just yeah. just a quick mention that it's a really cool effect. Isn't it cool that when he holds it up, it, they they credit K and B over that shot where he holds it up in the car. So the, yeah. the like the, the credit for the effect comes up exactly over that shot. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit nice of a, um, a preempt there for our our next film as well, isn't it? Oh, it is. Yes. Oh, tease. Well, before we uh, before we tease our next uh, Hallow Rewind uh, film, guys. Final thoughts on From Dust Till Dawn, and should our listeners seek it out this Halloween? I'll start with you, Matt. Oh, well, this one's a real gem for me. It's a, like I said earlier, it's kind of a freak occurrence to have such a trashy vampire movie with the weight of a Tarantino film. Uh, it's a premise that is perhaps undeserving of such thorough treatment, uh, and this level of talent, uh, it, making something so insanely, kind of, uh, unabashedly Fangoria crowd pleasing. Is, is a real rare treat. I think Quentin loves horror, but uh, I don't think he'll do an all-out horror. We've got one more film for him, I think, before he, he packs in. Uh, I don't think he's going to go all-out horror. I think he uses comedy and, and horror within other genres and kind of makes mm. his own genre in a way. Um, a Tarantino exploitation vampire film with Harvey Keitel. I mean, what, what more can you say? On a personal note, I think it's a film that, one of the films that made me want to make films this idea of a gang of geeky ragtag misfits all kind of banding together to create something is, is really interesting. And uh, a, a film that is fun to make and fun to watch is kind of an elusive thing because usually when you make something, you, you care about it so much that you stress out and you don't enjoy doing it. And it takes me back to the first film that we made. Even though it was dreadful, it was really fun to, to do mm. because we weren't too worried about the, the outcome. And uh, it's a real kind of beer and pizza pairing film for me. And it's ideal for kicking off any Halloween proceedings. Uh, I, I think the deal breaker for some out there as a caveat, maybe the sudden flip from crime drama to horror picture at this very sudden flip of a switch. Uh, Salma eases us in, obviously. So <laughs> you're probably going to go with it. Um, I, I personally love it and regard that as the most interesting thing about the film, really. Uh, it frustrated uh, my favourites, uh, Siskel and Ebert, and uh, yeah. they called it a structural error. Um, and it's not a structural error, it's completely intentional. Yeah, it's not an error. Either... It's... <laughs> no, no, you, you either go for it or you don't. It's it's completely intentional. Uh, I think if Robert Kurtzman had written and directed it, we, we may be more glad of the twist. It's the fact that Quentin makes the early, hour, the, the first hour, uh, so strong that maybe you don't want these characters to be thrust into a completely different world. Uh, unless you're pretty timid or a youngster, you're probably not going to be terrified by the film. Um, but put it on this Halloween, play it loud. Um, it, it's a massive recommend for me. Uh, I think it'll make you laugh and it'll entertain you and it, it'll kind of jolt you into the Halloween spirit, I think. So yeah, big recommend from me. Uh, how about you, Gally? Yeah, I think, um, I'll keep this one brief because I think I've, I've, 
I've made it abundantly clear throughout this discussion, but I, I really enjoy it. Um, and I think it's, uh, as I said before, um, a proper gateway for, for those who are either seeking to get into the Halloween mood, uh, or have never really, um, sort of entertained the idea of watching these kind of B movie schlock, uh, exploitation films. So, and, and there's in another dimension, Harvey Keitel is played by Tom Atkins and in another dimension, the George Clooney character is played by, I don't know, uh, what the, the, the lesser Stallone. Whoa, brother. whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, George yeah. Clooney character, Frank, <laughs> Frank, Frank Stallone. Um, yeah, no, but you know what I mean? Like that you could easily see it, but actually what we have here is a, a bunch of really talented filmmakers making something that, and I know that the film in the end kind of got knocked for it. Like, oh, they wasted their, you know, they wasted their time and their talents on this. Absolutely not. Like, you know, I think this is exactly the kind of film that they wanted to make and they achieved it. I, I, I would have liked them to commit it fully um, with the internal conflict of the group and seen that thread pulled all the way through. But I understand as well that audiences can only take so much nihilism and clearly they wanted to see George live at the end and Kate live at the end. Um, despite her just being left in the middle of a field, um, not sure she's gonna make it. But you know what I mean. She's got some money in a in a back pocket, I suppose. So yeah, no, I really enjoy it. I would absolutely recommend uh, that people seek it out this Halloween because uh, it will start off our series very nicely, indeed. What about you, Devlin? Not much to add other than uh, than than I agree. Um, as we go through our Halloween wind, which uh, I would I would like to point out to everyone, this was uh, Matt's creation uh for the for the name of the series and i was very happy with it and i told uh my my girlfriend that that's what matt had decided to call this and she did not get it uh first of all didn't didn't, didn't get it no, at all and then it. when i explained it she's like ah that's kind of stupid <laughs> <laughs> i disagree i think it's brilliant um but as we go through this series i will uh, uh Halloween recommendations are different to horror recommendations for me. I don't, I don't, um, I don't always watch the same sorts of films, uh, uh, that I would usually watch. Me and Matt are, are going to be putting together a, um, another little piece where we talk about a broader range of recommendations for Halloween than, than just the four films we're going to pick individually. Uh, and usually, uh, vampires wouldn't be on my list, uh, but there's, there's something that's so perfect about the tone of this. It's, you're exactly right when it's like, it's a beer and pizza, turn it up loud. This is, this is like a fun, silly, rampant kind of film that it does kind of, it, it keeps you interested with, with some good performances and then it, and then it descends into insanity and it, it pays off exactly what it should be paying off. Uh, even though the, the initial sequence of Vampire Flurry is around six and a half to seven minutes long and that's the bulk of it really. It's, it's still big enough and crazy enough and, uh, and fun enough. And it was, it was a, a really, um, it was a real kind of lightning in a bottle moment of the, the point at which this kind of genre pastiche work was done with enough love and reverence. And it was fresh enough that, uh, people were still kind of pinging ideas in it. And, uh, I think everything about it that could be considered clunky or, 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 or odd is, is just, um, idiosyncrasies that make it more interesting. And I think it's something that later films of this ilk, uh, probably lost, which is the joy of it. 
which is like you were saying, Matt, I've not watched the documentary, but I am very keen to now just because I, I, I like the idea of, of, of seeing these people just kind of have fun with the creation of something. Whereas, um, we've seen enough terrible exploitation movies of the seventies and eighties where nothing happens and it's all a smoke screen and it's a good poster and nothing better. And we've seen enough kind of post dust till dawn, post grindhouse. Um, genre pastiche exercises, which are, uh, just read joyless or, or just, they forget to actually make them good films. I think it's a lot of fun. And, uh, what about you, Patrick? It is a lot of fun, Devlin. I'll just continue where you left off there. I found it, I found myself having a lot. I only watched it once this week. I just wanted the one viewing. I've only seen it once before. I do remember looking back on it, uh, trying to remember when I was with mum and dad, enjoying the dialogue of the second half more than the first half. And then this time around, interestingly, I quite enjoyed the dialogue, the first half uh, a lot more than I remember um, because we talked about the tonal shift. But um, it makes it quite a unique viewing. I, I'd hope it's hard reviewing this because now I'm saying... I'd love people to watch this without knowing anything about it. We've just fucking talked about everything that, that's going to ruin mm. it. So don't listen to this. It's, it's, <laughs> it's too late and I'm sorry, but you know, we have said it's already in the trailers, the uh, plot synopsis, mm. etc. So it's a hard one. I, I'm really jealous of anyone like me when I was younger. I'm jealous of anyone who watches this who, who doesn't know anything because when that hour hits, or even when Simon Hayek starts dancing and you start to think, what is, where's this going? What the fuck? It is, a, I think it's a really fun, rambunctious, uh, second half to the film that I found myself, yeah, really enjoying. Um, and I was quite wowed by it, you know, the wow them in the end, Gally, as we like to say, or wow them in the second half here. And it, it did make me just not, forget about everything I was invested in in the first half, which I don't think I've seen a film that's done that to me before fully like this. Um, it wasn't until I was writing my notes and talking about it. You know, I, I would like more Harvey Keitel development, uh, Jacob development in his character. And there are kind of, uh, it is a mess and all over the place in certain aspects of it. But I really revel in the idea that uh, you can be a, uh, auteur, um, kind of cinema and these guys are, I agree with everything you're saying. It, they may not have been that influential for me when I was younger, Tarantino and Rodriguez, but I really appreciate the craft and the, where they've come from to influence people. Um, and I see that a lot in this film. So for listeners who are seeking out, uh, where to watch from Dust Till Dawn this Halloween, I've got iTunes here. I've got Amazon Prime. We have to pay for it. There's nothing free. And HBO Max. Yeah, there's nothing free. And, uh, but I, I would recommend that anyone seeks out the collector's edition DVD or the Blu-ray with full tilt boogie. And it's got an ace commentary on it and a, a ton of extras. So you'll, you'll probably really enjoy that. I absolutely second that, Matt. And you, I almost went on a little rant right at the beginning of this episode about, um, new release Blu-rays because it's really starting mm. to wind me up. Because I went, I eventually, because I found it in a HMV, the Blu-ray, with nothing. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to go to my local smelly computer exchange and just see if I can pick this up secondhand. And lo and behold, I did for £1. And it's the full shabam, commentary, full tilt boogie, making of trailers and music. They did take it off later, right? They took it off the Blu-rays. Yeah, they took it off. Yeah, but the the Blu-ray had nothing. 
It was just the film, and they were trying to charge me nine quid. I was like, what? Come on. So yeah, little rant over, but please do better. That's where you can. That's where you can find the film. Um, our next Halloween rewind. I'm just nice. going to keep saying it that way because it's really fun, isn't it? Um, choice. It's a Christopher Devlin. Ahoy. So devs. Um, what what are we watching next in our journey to our Halloween in our rewind? journey into darkness? <laughs> devs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I was saying, strange times around Halloween. It makes me want to watch weird films. Any good Halloween marathon or good Halloween viewing session, I feel like, needs to have quite a, a range of different films. You don't want to just watch all the same sort of stuff. And uh, as a moody, disaffected, small-town teenager with horrible, dyed black, scraggly hair, of course, <laughs> I was a big fan of Alex Proyas' The Crow, nice. uh, which is set, of course, across Devil's Night. And, uh, and, and into, to Halloween. So, uh, so I have picked the, uh, comic book adaptation, the dark and gritty, Brandon Lee tragic romance, oh, supernatural <laughs> revenge Thing. drama, <laughs> The Crow. That's very interesting. Excellent. Well, there you go. I'm excited. Uh, so we will be talking Alex Proyas' The Crow, if those of you that want to get ahead of the game and not watch the film before that episode drops. But there you go. Thank you very much, Devlin. And we'll continue our series, and the next one will be revealed at the end of that episode. We'll say our goodbyes, everyone. It's Gally in Glasgow, and I'm going to say a line from the titty-twister guitarist and vocalist, which is, fuck you, everybody, and good night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hard drinkers. Let's drink hard. Oh. It's Devlin in London. You know what they say about me? I suck. Uh, it's Patrick from London. Now let's kill that fucking band. It's Matt in South Korea. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.